Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, all of you, for coming. This is such a, a beautiful, beautiful turnout, and I thank you for being here tonight. On behalf of uh, uh, Jill and myself, uh, my brother, Mayor Michael, and my sister-in-law, Amy, uh, on behalf of our father, uh, Leon Wilds, unfortunately, he could not be here tonight, and we want to wish a Rafur Shlema. Uh, it is an honor to welcome you to the 28th uh, annual talk in memory of our mother, Ruth Wilds, Zechrona um, Levracha. I want to especially uh, welcome uh, my aunt, Bookie, and Uncle Jerry, uh, who came um, together with my cousin Maury, who made Aliyah recently. Uh, that's my brother's, my father's older brother, uh, who are here tonight, and it's really such a zechus, and it's very, very special for us to have you guys here tonight. Thank you for being here. I also want to welcome um, one of my mother's, my mother's oldest and dearest friends, uh, friend Joyce White, who is here. He's a very active member here in the Jewish Center, and thank you so much for being here, and Joyce. Um, I want to also welcome Rabbi Daniel Krauss, and uh, from across the park, from KJ, our dear friend. And I want to especially thank Rabbi Ezra Cohn uh, for not only his tireless dedication as our COO, MGE Downtown Director, but really bringing his good friend, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, uh, to us tonight. Um, I also want to welcome, of course, Chani, Chani Perlman, and uh, Aaron Liara Bluestein, um, and Rabbi Kevin Allison Wolf, Rabbi Moshe and Shana Davis, uh, and of course to Leah and Michal, who did so much work for tonight's program. Thank you all for everything you do, all the time for MJE. Uh, we are privileged to hear from someone very, very special. But before I have the honor of introducing Rabbi Goldberg, I just want to say a brief word about Pesel Abigail, uh, Bat Menachem, uh, my mother, Ruth Wilds, in whose memory MGE was established. Uh, this is our 28th year. We started MGE 25 years ago. We'll be celebrating our 25th year this year, which is pretty unbelievable. So I just want to share something brief in her memory and to keep in mind that this entire program, because she would want this, is dedicated to the Chayalim, to our brothers and sisters serving and protecting not only Israel, but the Jewish people throughout the world. So let's keep the Chayalim and, of course, the hostages, that all the Torah that we study and the achdos and the unity that we experience tonight should be a zuchos, should be a spiritual merit for them all. Uh, Hanukkah, as Rabbi Goldberg said, could not have come um, early enough. And next Friday night, we're going to be lighting two sets of candles, the regular Shabbos candles and, of course, the menorah. We start with the menorah. And it might just seem like more candles, but they really represent two different paradigms and two different fundamental concepts in Yahadut, in Judaism. Why do we light Shabbos candles? So our sages teach, they instituted this mitzvah in order to create two things. Onik Shabbos, rejoicing in the home, and Shalom Bayis, peace in the home, because a dark home, a dreary home, is not a home that can be festive and joyous. 
Hanukkah candles, on the other hand, we're not even permitted to enjoy the light. One of the songs that a lot of people are accustomed to sing after they light the menorah is Hanera Salalu. And what do we say in this beautiful prayer? We say, Ve'en lanu rishut We are not even permitted to use them. Just to see them, just to look at them. So the Shabbos candles and the Hanukkah candles are fundamentally different because Shabbos candles are really there to illuminate your home, which is why you need to hang out with your Shabbos candles a little. They should provide some illumination, and therefore you shouldn't light them in some remote part of your home, but where you can actually benefit from the light. The menorah is just the opposite. The menorah, where do we put the menorah? We put it on the windowsill. We put it in a place where we're not going to really gain any light because the light is supposed to be for the outside. And Shabbos is therefore, and its candles are there really to fill our homes with the spirit of Judaism. Hanukkah is really to take some of that light and share it with the world on the outside. We may not all be feeling so in such a good mood to share our light right now, but it is our task. It is the mission that we were set to do. And I wanted to share this idea because my brother Michael and I were blessed to be raised in a home with both of these lights. And not just actually, but metaphorically as well. Our mother created a beautiful Shabbos and a beautiful spiritual aura of Torah and mitzvahs in our home. And it's something, frankly, I'm still working off of to this day. But there was also a very strong sense of projecting some of that light to those on the outside. And I want to share just a very brief story that I used to share years ago, but it's been many years, and I want to keep the story alive, because it really speaks to who she was. I grew up, we grew up in Forest Hills, Queens, and uh, there was an elderly German Jew, we had a lot of yekis in our community, and uh, it was a bachelor, he lived in the projects in Forest Hills, always meticulously dressed. Every time you saw this man, he was wearing a three-piece suit, even if you visited him at his home. He had a lot of dignity, a lot of pride, but was, was alone. And when he was about 80, he suffered a heart attack. And he didn't have the money to hire someone to assist him. And he had a lot of pride. And there were members of the Queen's Jewish Center, our school, that really tried helping, but nobody could get through. So Rabbi Grimblatt, our Rav, of blessed memory, called my mother blessed memory, and asked if she could help. And the next day she showed up at his door with a newspaper and some flowers. And she spoke in his native German. And he let her in. And they began to speak. And after a few minutes she said, would it be okay if I opened the shades? It was very dark. And she let some light in. And she left, and then she came back the next week, and she began to cook for him. I remember she made all of these favorite dishes without salt. And then eventually, she made an arrangement with a local takeout place to get him the right kind of food without salt. And she continued to visit him regularly and finally got him to our home, which was like a big deal. And I remember that Shabbos that he came, 
he started opening up. And it was like he was alive again. She brought him back to life. And she had that, she had that power to just be very specific and very caring in her very quiet but dignified way. And I know if she was around now, she'd be yelling at me to get off the phone and obsessed with social media and just, just strolling through all of this stuff. And she'd focus us more on volunteering, spend that energy doing something positive, collect materials for the dislocated families. That's what I thought about when we went on our trip to Israel or the IDF or just raising money. Like she did, we had tens of thousands of Soviet Jews that moved into our community in the 70s and 80s. And that's what she did. She collected furniture, she took families in. And she encouraged us to take our Judaism seriously. When she'd see me praying or learning, or she'd see my brother running out on a Hatzalah call, she'd always say, if only your grandfather could see you now. Referring to my grandfather, who escaped Nazi Germany and who lived his life as a very proud religious Jew. She wanted us to make a difference. And I'm just going to share one last story and then introduce our guest speaker. Um, so, you know, people are talking about things happening to Jews and stuff happened in Queens. Some of it had nothing to do with the fact that we were Jewish, but some of it did. And my brother and I were mugged a couple of times. I just complained about it. My brother decided to do something, and he trained and eventually joined the auxiliary police force, the 112th precinct. And he walked the beat once or twice a week for literally the next 10 years. And I remember my mother sitting up every Thursday night. I used to keep her company. She would not go to sleep until he came home. She was worrying about him, but somehow knowing that she had kind of modeled this behavior. And she was once driving in her car in Forest Hills, and she got pulled over by a cop for running a stop sign. And the police officer took out the pad, started writing the ticket. And she noticed the 112th on the lapel. And so she looked up and she said, do you know Michael Wilds? <laughs> And he said, yeah, I know Michael Wilds. Why? He says, well, he's my son. He volunteers for the 112th, doesn't he? <laughs> and the cop said, your son is Michael Wilds? And he looked down at, she, he, had the, he had her license. And so she answered in the positive, and the officer said, ma'am, this is a true story, can I ask you to please step outside of the car? And my mother got out of the car, and then he asked, with your permission, I'd like to give a hug to the woman who brought such a fine young man into the world. And this large Latino policeman was <laughs> my mother. You could not have made her prouder, and she didn't get a ticket. <laughs> and I think if she was around today, I don't know if she would tell us all to put on a uniform and walk a beat but she would definitely tell us to keep our yarmulkes on and to keep wearing our mug and dovids and to increase our Torah and our mitzvos, to be that which our enemies are calling us out for being.
And this is why we dedicated MGE in her memory to perpetuate the extraordinary pride that she had in her Yiddishkeit and to emulate the chesed, the acts of kindness that she regularly practiced for so many people in our community. And I'm proud to say that MGE has followed her model, opening up our doors these last 25 years to tens of thousands of our less connected Jewish brothers and sisters, sharing the beauty of Shabbos, like our mother did in her ever-expanding Shabbat table, creating a venue, 386 couples who have met and married. Our mother would have been very proud of that accomplishment, and she would have loved our speaker, my friend Rabbi Goldberg, for two reasons. Number one, she was a very growth-oriented person, and Rabbi Goldberg's Torah speaks to those looking to grow. To those who want to become the best versions of themselves. I got that line from you. And uh, he's also not afraid to speak about having faith, about Amuna. Sometimes in our community we get a little sophisticated and intellectual and prevents us sometimes from speaking about the raw feelings and emotions that we should be having or could be experiencing with our Creator. How to develop a healthy kind of amuna and bitachon, faith and trust in Hashem, especially in these challenging times. And Rabbi Goldberg is here, and I want to thank you in advance. It is not easy. He's a very busy rabbi, and he literally got on a plane just to be here tonight with us, and it means the world to us. Rabbi Goldberg is the senior rabbi of the Boca Raton Synagogue. A couple of Jews out there, Boca Raton, if you haven't heard. <laughs> Largest Orthodox synagogue in the Southeast with over a thousand families growing each and every day. His warm and welcoming personalities helped attract people from all backgrounds and those of you in the other room. He loves the credo, valuing diversity and celebrating unity. Uh, the shul hosts a Boca Jewish experience, which we've never filed suit about. <laughs> Reaching out to those less connected, serving as a very important leader in, in the greater South Florida community. Rabbi Ephraim's incredible talks, his lectures, his seminars, his awesome podcast, Behind the Bima, are listened to by tens of thousands of people throughout the world, especially by Jill and my kids. <laughs> he is a rock star in my home. I have no credibility anymore. <laughs> and I'm still going to recommend his six-minute sitter snippets, his ten minutes of meaning, his classes on the Muna, they're really amazing and very appropriate for, I mean, all Jews, really, but particularly, I think, here at MJE, and it's a tremendous achos for us to have you and for our family to have you to say, say some words of Torah in our mother's memory. Ladies and gentlemen, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. No, I'm going to take out my phone that has the time. That will mean absolutely nothing for you, but I'm going to do it anyway. thank you for that incredibly kind and exaggerated introduction. The truth is, I don't know why I flew in. I was enjoying listening to you. I think you should speak each and every year in this slot and every other, because that was amazingly inspiring and touching, and those stories I know touched my heart and I think all of ours. And... I and we watch from a little distance and afar, a little closer to the equator and to the warmer weather. It's really cold here. <laughs> really cold. 
Um, and we watch with admiration and awe, a little bit of envy, what you've built, what you're doing, your amazing team, so many I met tonight, and all of you, seekers and searchers and people at stages of life that so many others are finished and complete and are done and have all the answers and filled with questions and yearning and looking and growing and asking. It's an amazing environment. It's an amazing energy, and it lifts everybody. It lifts your teachers, and it lifts the people who live here, and it lifts the Jewish people. And so thank you for the amazing honor of a, of a speaking slot, which is, which is really an honor to begin with, but in memory of your very special mother, especially, really touches me to dedicate these words in her memory. And Yibadol Chaim Tovam Ba'aruchim, your father should have a refuah shleimah, should have strength and, and healing from our words and all the merits that he has from you. You spoke about the Shabbos candles and the Hanukkah candles. And here's the thing about a candle. The thing about a candle is that you could take your flame and light an infinite number of other wicks, ignite that spark, get them on fire, and it doesn't diminish your flame whatsoever. It's an amazing thing about a flame. There's almost no other commodity. If I share my money with you, I have less of it. If I give you my time, I have less time. Almost every other commodity, the more we share, the less we have. But a flame, and that's why a flame is the image, Kinera Shem Nishmas Adam, the flame is the, is the soul, the soul of life. And you can light so many other people, not only are you not diminished, then your flame is burning even brighter. It's having even more of an impact as your mothers clearly did. But the other thing about a flame is that the original flame that lit all the other fires, it can be extinguished. But as long as those fires live on and burn and they ignite and spark and light other fires, that first flame is still burning. And so while your mother is not here through your work, your brother, the mayor's work, also holy work, advocating and fighting Jewish interests and values, power team. She clearly did something incredibly right. And through you and through MJE and through the work you do and the accomplishments and the results that you have, her flame is not only not extinguished, it's burning brighter than ever, having lit this menorah of the Wilds family that burns so bright and is a light for all the Jewish people. So I'm, I'm honored and humbled and grateful for this opportunity. To be with my friend Rabbi Ezra, I don't know what the, the secret, the fountain of youth of MJE is, why Rabbi Ezra and Rabbi Wilds look younger and younger, and I look like an old, old man. <laughs> I'm actually younger than both of them, believe that or not. <laughs> but Rabbi Ezra and I were chavrusas, we were study partners in rabbinical school, both in the base medrash, the study hall, we prepared for our bachinas, our <laughs> tests for smicha, rabbinic ordination together, we were chavrusas on the tennis court, for a long time, a long time I was his student, more recently I became the teacher, <laughs> I'm proud to say, but you know, to be here with you and, and to know the difference that you're making and to see the results of your impact, your influence is really, really special, so I'm deeply, deeply appreciative, and I want to take a point of personal privilege in saying how excited I am to be with all of you, but Judge Hellerstein, who is my sister's father-in-law, Judge Hellerstein is, is family, is part of our family and uh, teaches and has taught me so much and we're so proud to have this connection and to together be going through. He has uh, three grandsons serving in the IDF, one in Gaza, fighting on the front line. And certainly this is in their honor. And all the soldiers and, and your candle that you've ignited and our family and my sister and her family, and you're seeing the peros, you're seeing the fruit of your Jewish pride and, and Jewish inspiration and strong Jewish values, and 
sense of justice and seeing the Jewish people fight for justice in Israel. They should be successful and come home safely and continue to give you and all of us tremendous pride. It's great to be together. Okay, that doesn't come off my time, right? <laughs> it's like the rabbinical stuff in the introduction. Before I speak, I'd like to say a few words. That's our <laughs> Am I going to get a bill for this? Okay, we're good. That's it? Got it back together. Okay, let's get down to business and let's... I'm not going to touch it anymore. I think MJE could use a few donations. What's, what's the website? JewishExperience.org. Jewishexperience.org. You could put in the subject line, Nushten. We're good to go. Okay. So... Joking aside, it's a very serious time, and it's a very serious evening, and it's a very serious, it's a very serious subject. And that is Israel. Our lives were rattled and haven't been the same since October 7th. I remember as a kid playing sports. You ever played sports and you were ever hit in the solar plexus? You ever got somebody ran into you in the gut and knocked the wind out of you? Do you remember that experience of gasping for air, of wondering whether you'll ever be able to catch your breath and breathe again? And the closest I've come to that feeling as a kid, physically, has been since October 7th, this feeling of the wind being knocked out of us. We haven't caught our breath in eight weeks. Eight weeks, we haven't processed what it means 1,200 people were brutally and barbarically murdered in their homes in gruesome ways that we don't need to spell out or repeat here tonight. The 240 were taken hostage, and while some... Many, thank God, are reunited with their families. Some released to learn that they don't have families. But too many are still in captivity. And our soldiers on those front lines, hundreds of thousands, called up, risking it all. And an economy that is suspended and a people that are... We don't have to spell out where we are. We can't catch our breath. We are grieving and we're sad and we're scared, and we're anxious, and we're worried. And that's just Israel, because on October 7th, we thought this was a war against Israel. But quickly, by October 8th, and increasingly now, we know this isn't a war restricted to Israel's boundaries and borders. This is a war that we're all facing. When Rabbi Wilde asked me tonight, do you have pepper spray while we were walking the streets of Manhattan? And I laughed, but he wasn't joking. That's a war we're all facing. I grew up over the bridge in Teaneck, New Jersey. When we came to Manhattan, we never worried about carrying a weapon. No one said, Took off, take off your kippah or your yarmulke. And now on college campuses and in the halls of Congress and across media, the Jewish people are under attack. It's a war not only in Israel, a war around the world. And when we look and when we see the sheer numbers that we with such pride brought 290,000 together, many of you I'm sure were in Washington a few weeks ago, but you see the sheer numbers of those rallying against us. How do you not become hopeless? How do you not say it's over? How do we not despair? How do we not become despondent? Did you see the scene of the Oakland City Council meeting last night where person after person got up? We sit and we wonder 78 years after the Holocaust, how can people deny it? And here we are, seven weeks after a pogrom and a miniature holocaust. And in Oakland, California, there is a city of people one by one who got up, no mask, they weren't ashamed, they weren't hiding their faces to say, this never happened, the Jews killed their own people, Israel did this atrocity. 
the most heinous, egregious things, sympathizing with terrorists, accomplices to terror and murder. You see such a city council unabashed people, unashamed to say those things. How do we not despair? How do we not give up hope? How do we not turn it in? How do we not say it was a good ride? It was a good story, but maybe we're done. It's frightening and it's disconcerting. And if we're not careful, it can become debilitating. And the answer, my friends, is Hanukkah. Hanukkah cannot come quickly enough. Hanukkah could not come at a better time. Hanukkah and its energy, Hanukkah and its theme, Hanukkah and its miracles, Hanukkah and its light is exactly what we need. And I want to explain to you what I mean by that. Hanukkah, as Rabbi Wilde said, is all about the sense of sight, of seeing. Haneris halalu kodesh These candles are holy, they're sacred. We're not entitled to use them. It's a very peculiar light. As Rabbi Waz described, normally you use light to illuminate. You use light so that you can see. We grab something to eat before, and because Rabbi Ezra is older than I am, and he couldn't see when he was signing his name, he had to turn the flashlight on his phone to be able to see and figure out the tip and sign it at the end. Because, I don't know if I mentioned, he's older than I am. <laughs> Because he needed light in order to see. Normally we use light functionally, pragmatically. We use the light because it serves a purpose. And this is a peculiar light. We light a candelabra, we light a menorah, a chanukiah, but you're not allowed to use it. And the rabbis are explicit. Don't count money next to it. Don't open a book and read next to it. Don't use it to sign a receipt. You cannot use this light. They're holy, they're sacred. But you can't use them. All we do is look at them. And as we sing each night of Hanukkah, the candles are sacred. We don't have permission. Talmud tells us another unusual, peculiar law when it comes to this. If you put on tefillin this morning and somebody saw you put those tefillin on, they wouldn't recite a blessing just because they see you doing a mitzvah. If you light the Shabbos candles and somebody watches or observes or sees, they don't make a bracha. If you shook the lulav and esrog on sukkahs and somebody saw, they might swell with pride, they might smile, they might cheer and clap and say, way to go. But there's no blessing. There's no blessing to recite on someone else doing a mitzvah. The one exception, the one exception in a circumstance where you're not lighting on your own, let's say this were Hanukkah, and I'm staying at a hotel, I don't have a place to light, and I were walking the streets of Manhattan, and I see a menorah. I stop. I stop and I recite a blessing. I stop and I recite a blessing. God, you've made miracles for our forefathers. Why? I don't do that if I see you put on tefillin. I don't see that when I see you give you tzaka, giving tzaka. I don't say a blessing when I see you lighting the Shabbos candles. What's special about the menorah? So there's a great Hasidic master of Levi Yitzchak of Berdich of the Kedushas Levi, and he says that every Jewish holiday corresponds with one of our senses. So for example, Purim. The holiday of Purim corresponds with which sense? The sense of hearing, of listening. We listen to the Megillah, and we hear the sound of the groggers. Pesach, Passover, corresponds with which sense? The sense of taste. We eat the matzah, and we eat the maror, and we taste our way, we literally taste Pesach in our mouth, the matzah and the maror. And Hanukkah is the holiday of seeing. Hanukkah is the holiday of sight. We look at that menorah, don't use it, not allowed to use it, but nevertheless we look at it and we gaze at it. And the Hasidic masters in fact tell us that if on Hanukkah, next week, a week from tomorrow night, we light the first candle, after you light the candle, we all make a terrible mistake and we do a terrible disservice to ourselves and our families. And I know I've seen it much. We light the candle and then we run out of the room. 
because it's time to give out or get the presents. It's time to fry the latkes. It's time to unveil the donuts. It's time to run to the Hanukkah event or the Hanukkah concert. And Nebuch, the poor candle, is sitting in the windowsill by itself. It's burning bright, but there's nobody there to watch it. And what we're supposed to do is sit and gaze and stare and fix our eyes upon the light of the candle. See that flickering flame and see our soul. See our potential. See the better and best version of ourselves. You know, we spoke about a candle and a flame that you can light so many others without diminishing your own and that you can continue to live on through the candles you lit even when your flame is extinguished. There's another amazing thing about a candle. No matter which direction you hold the candle, the flame always flickers up. It always rises. Because the soul is always yearning. It's always striving. It's always climbing. That's what MJE, that's what you are all about. That's what you are doing. Don't you understand? You are the antidote to Hamas. You are the answer to anti-Semites. We're caught up in the statistics and the data and the numbers. We're caught up in the danger and the threats and the fears. And they're all warranted and grounded and important. But we forget the sort of core of what they're trying to do. And what they want to do is extinguish our flame. What they're trying to do is exterminate and eliminate our impact and our people. They want Judaism to disappear, to be relegated to a museum, to be part of the past. And when your flame flickers and it climbs up, no matter which way the candle is held, in good moments and in bad moments, no matter which direction you hold the candle, the soul inside us, it wants to climb, it wants to rise It wants to go higher and higher. That's a human being. Animals walk on all four. They face the ground. They're for the here and now. The human being walks on two legs because we're reaching and striving. We're climbing towards the heavens. You, MJE, this enterprise that is enriching Jewish lives and that is creating a home and a space for people who are curious and growing and asking, who say, fan my flame. I want it to burn bright. That is the antidote, and that is the answer. And that is Hanukkah. Hanukkah is this holiday of, of sight. To look and to gaze. And the Hasidic masters say, in fact, we can repair whatever damage we've done to our eyes on, this, on the holiday of Hanukkah. If you don't run to the party, to fry the latkes, and to eat the donuts, but you spend some time. There's a campaign they run every year, in fact, to spend a half an hour with the candles technology-free. Turn off the technology... Turn off the distractions and the disruptions. Turn off the thing that make us absent, present, and be fully present with the candles and really with yourself and with your loved ones, with the people around you. And sit and gaze and look at the flame. Don't use it to read. Don't use it to count. Don't use it to look. Don't use it to sign. Just look at the flame. But why? What are we looking for? What are we accomplishing? It's an amazing thing about our eyesight. And that is, in a sort of paradoxical way, our eyes are a liability. We often feel, and we subscribe to the philosophy, that seeing is believing. If you see it, then it's true. And if you didn't witness it, you didn't watch it, you didn't observe it, you didn't see it, it didn't happen. Seeing is believing. Seeing is greater than believing. If I can perceive it, if I can observe it, if I can measure it, it's true. And if I can't, it's not real. And following that rule and that self-imposed limitation we have sabotaged ourselves because we have dismissed and disregarded some of the most important truths and realities in our lives that can't be seen or observed traditionally, that can't be measured, but that are the highest truths. 
There are ideas and feelings and thoughts and emotions and dreams and experiences. They're authentic and they're genuine, but they can't be seen or observed. And in some ways, they're not less true, they're more true. That's what the Greeks, the Syrian Greeks, were trying to do to us. The word that our rabbis used to talk about the exile of Yavam, the Syrian Greek exile, is choshech. The beginning of Genesis, there are four terms used to describe creation from a state of chaos to order, and they describe the four exiles, the four foreign governments that cast us into exile, and Yavam, the Syrian Greek exile, the exile of the story of Hanukkah, which, by the way, is evidence that exile is not a geographic description, because where did the exile of Yavan of Syria and Greece take place? Not in Greece, not in Syria. Where did it happen? In Israel. You could be in a state of exile in Israel. Yet in Israel, it's not a geographic description, it is not physical, it's metaphysical. It is an existential description. And what word describes that exile? Choshech. Darkness, darkness is the exile of the story of Hanukkah of the Syrian Greeks. And in expounding on the opening verse, they say even further, that these enemies, these adversaries, their whole mission and their whole goal was to darken the eyes, was to diminish our sense of sight, was to make us believe it's only true if you can see it. They worshipped the aesthetic, the body, the human body. They invented the Olympics. What you can see, what is chiseled, what is a form, what is external beauty, that's what's real. What's inside, the panemius, the essence, what you can't see and you can't measure, that's not real. That's not real. What's the difference between a room that's dark or that's filled with light? If you would shut off the lights right now and make this room pitch black, pitch dark... Would there be anything fundamentally different in the room now? Same people sitting in the same chairs, the same furniture, and the same obstacles that would get in the way if you were trying to leave. The difference of darkness and light is not a difference of a reality of what's in the room. The only difference is what you can perceive. The ability to identify and see the reality, the truth, that is right before us all along. And that is what Hanukkah is all about. It's about turning on that light, and it's about seeing truths the inner truth, the panemius, the essence, the essential truths that can't be observed or watched or witnessed, but that are more real, are even more authentic, that are the most real. You can live with your eyes open, perfect vision, the light on, and still be cloaked in darkness. And it can be pitch black all around, and you can see clearly and know what is real and what is true, what is eternal and what is everlasting. And the Hashmonaim, the heroes of the Hanukkah story, understood that. They understood that, while so many others didn't. And we wonder, what would we have said if we lived in that time? We might have looked and seen the statistics. We might have seen the enemy. They far outnumber us. In quantity and quality, they have military superiority. They're strong and we're weak. They're many and we're few. What are we doing? There's no chance. There's no fight. Why bother? We're going to be decimated. We're going to be eliminated. Why bother? Because if all you see is the surface... That is the inevitable conclusion you'll arrive at. But if you can see the essence, if you could look inside, if you can see beyond, if you can imagine and you can dream, if you can live with faith, if you see through the vision and the prism of eternity, not the here and now, then you don't see what lies right in front of you. You see the divine hand protecting you. You see the Jewish history 
transforming into the Jewish destiny. There are two types of truth. There is what is, and there is what must become. There are people who are caught up and paralyzed by what is, and there are the people of what is to become. One kind of truth reports history, and the other kind of truth makes history. We are the people that make history. We don't just report history. We are focused on what we can become. We're not fixated or stuck in what is. And that all comes from our sense of sight. It's a 2020 vision not measured by an ophthalmologist or an optometrist. It's a vision that is not based on our eyesight, but based on our hearts and our souls. And that's what we've been charged as a people throughout our history. That is the only reason that we're still here right now. Because had we not had this sense of vision, this meta-vision, this capacity to dream and imagine and see beyond, to know this truth, we would have disappeared. We would have given up long ago because we faced impossible odds. We've overcome and confronted impossible challenges. Many other people, all other peoples, would have given up hope. They would have waved the white flag. They would have turned it in. And here we have succeeded because we have vision instead of sight. Imagination instead of observation. I saw it myself recently, I'm sure by Wildsden and others who've been to Israel. All over Israel right now, on the sides of buses and hanging on billboards and bumper stickers on cars is Am HaNetzach Yenatzeach. The people of eternity will prevail. That's not a message from the religious or the irreligious or the right wing or the left wing or the pro-judicial reform or anti-judicial reform. That is a motto the entire people of Israel and Jews around the world can rally around. It is a motto that so succinctly encapsulates and expresses how we've got here and how we will go forward. We are the Amanetzach. We are the people of eternity. We defy the laws of history. We have overcome all odds. Statistics ain't mazal, Israel. We are not bound by the ordinary statistics and data, by military strategists and pundits, because we see with that other sense of sight, because we have vision instead of sight, imagination instead of observation, because we make history, not report it, because we focus on what we must become and not what is, because we are the amanetzach, we are the people of eternity, yinatzach, we will prevail. On my trip to Israel, we visited Shura, which is the army base, the headquarters of the rabbinate of the army. They've been working overtime because they are where all the bodies are brought when the military is fighting. In this case, on October 7th, civilian bodies were brought, some of them still being identified. That gives you a sense if it takes two months to identify a body, the brutality that was carried out against it. That's where... The tzitzis are being held, that are made, that every soldier wants. Every soldier wants. Ordinarily, they have 30,000 pairs of tzitzis in the storehouse because in the previous conflicts, at most, 30,000 soldiers have been called up. So what do you do when 500,000 soldiers are called up and they all want tzitzis? Well, you do a tzitzis campaign and you order 500,000 begadim, the garments, imported, of course, from China and India. And then you get the strings, but they have to be tied by people. You can't use machines. So how do you tie 500,000 pairs of tzitzis? I don't know if it's hit Manhattan yet, or MJE. If it hasn't, it should. But in Boca Raton Synagogue, we just tied 2,000 pairs. 
Another community is 1,000, another community is 2,500 and 300 in this school. And Jews around the world are tying tzitzis, and tzitzis is tying the Jewish people together. And they are going right to these soldiers who are wearing them. And even I, even I, to be a moment of honesty and transparency, was a little skeptical. This is a gimmick. Do the soldiers really all want them? Are they really all wearing them? Was this like a nice thing that would lift the morale that we just made this story up? So I posted on our family WhatsApp group the video in our synagogue of people tying the tzitzis. And I'll tell you, it was remarkable because not only did the members of our community come to tie them, but there were people who are not observant, not orthodox, who came to tie, who wanted to be part of tying the Jewish people and tying the what is part of the uniform and the armor, the body armor. Soldiers want ceramic vests that are bulletproof, but they also want to wear the tzitzis that are part of their armor. So I posted the video on our WhatsApp group, and my niece, Leah, Judge Hellerstein's granddaughter, wrote back. She said, Avinoam, her husband, who's in Gaza, said, and she wrote in capital letters, every one, every soldier is wearing tzitzis. Many of whom never put on tzitzis in their life, some of whom probably never heard of tzitzis in their life. I'll tell you a beautiful image. In our synagogue, one of the evenings that we had the campaign to tie the tzitzis, there was a Jew who came, and he was covered in tattoos and a piercing, and he's not wearing a kippah, and he's tying the tzitzis, and he's got Jewish symbols, Magen David, like tattooed on him. And it's like the holiest image, this Jew without a yarmulke, covered in tattoos, and I don't want to make assumptions about him or generalities about him, but he was not the, the image of a member, member of, a, of an Orthodox synagogue, let's say, necessarily. Happened to have created a question, because it's possible the rabbi of the army wanted to just check in on some of our tzitzis. I wrote a whole article explaining not only kosher, they're, they're the holiest tzitzis that there, that there are, the holiest tzitzis that there are. <coughs> but we're tying these tzitzis. People are wearing these tzitzis because the people of eternity don't just wear the classic uniform. They don't just wear the classic uniform. They want to wear tzitzis. They have posters they're giving out from Shura, the army base of the chief rabbinate. Amazing posters. I don't know if you saw them. They're hanging on all these army outposts and army bases and on the front line, outside Gaza, and the north, outside Lebanon. And it's a timeline. And it traces the Am HaNetzach, the Jewish people, and the fight and the conflicts that we've had, going all the way back to Abraham, and the war of the four kings and the five kings, all the way until October 7, 2023, Simchas Torah, the war of Pei Dalet of this year. And each of these wars, how we won, because the Am HaNetzach, Yenatzeach. Is there another army in the world that has an entire division of the army dedicated to spirituality, to religiosity, to biblical teaching, to tracing its history, to finding its eternity. I brought home with me, there are little cards that are composed. There are prayers. If you're a combat soldier, there's a Yehiratzon. There's a prayer you say on your way into combat. And if you're an Air Force pilot, there's a Yehiratzon, a little card with a prayer to say when you're about to take flight on a mission in the Air Force. And there's a little card with a little prayer he wrote on if you're a member of Israel's navy. Is there another army? Is there another army that has a prayer that is authored for soldiers in different units to understand that this fight and this battle, that this that our real general is the Almighty, the omnipotent one himself? Because we're not a people of what is, we're a people of what we will become. We're not looking to report history, we're looking to make it. We're not looking to to simply have sight, but we're looking to live with a vision. That is not just, you know, if I were giving this talk last year before Hanukkah, I would have broken into what I'm about to tell you now, which is, what if Moses had looked at the Egyptians, the empire, and never challenged power to let his people go? 
And what if the Maccabees had only considered the, fa- the facts that they were few and outnumbered and they were weak against the mighty and they never revolted against the Greek oppressors? And what if Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai just accepted the power of Vespasian and never asked for Yavnan and sages? And what if in 1948 and 1967 the brave men and women of the IDF of Israel had a truly accepted the impossible chance of overcoming the many nations that surrounded it, we wouldn't be here. And I would have given you a beautiful talk and a beautiful description of history until this point, but I'm telling you not about the past, I'm telling you something that's happening in the present. I'm describing to you the will of the soldiers right now, of the Am HaNetzach Seach. I'll tell you about the sergeant I met from the IDF, who on October 7th, when his wife, who has stage 4 cancer and is in bed recovering, and he's taking care of his children, two out of whom, three of whom have significant autism. And from her hospital bed, she heard what happened October 7th and turned to her husband and said, get your bag and get your gun and go fight. And when I saw him three weeks ago, he hadn't been home yet since. Because the Am HaNetzach Yenatzeach, this people of eternity, our resolve and our will and our tenacity, what we are fighting for will carry the day and we will be victorious. And it's what is the will of people to return. You're starting to hear reports from Kfar Aza and from Beiri, communities that were decimated, whose populations were cut in half, who are not saying, I'm moving to Boca or Manhattan, I put in my time, I'm done, and I'm out, who are saying, we're going to expand, we're building more homes, our population's going to grow. I went to the hospital and I visited someone named Michal, who on October 7th, the real story it's not why you brought me here. It's not what I'm talking about tonight. But the real story of October 7th, when the army, for whatever reasons, which we may learn or may never learn, were unable or didn't come, were the civilians of Israel who saved Israel. Because, make no mistake, these terrorists wanted to march straight to Jerusalem. And if they could have, they would have destroyed all of Israel. But the civilians were the heroes, drivers of United Hatzalah, who normally take out splinters and deliver babies and resuscitate people but all of a sudden, grabbed guns and we're fighting for our lives. There's a community of people. It's called Shlomit. It's part of Chalutza. It is on the border. Are you ready for this? It's on the border of Gaza and Egypt and Israel. And do you know who lives there? People whose families used to live in Yamit, in the Sinai, till Israel said, no, we make peace. It's time to leave. We're taking you out of your homes. But you know where we need you to go settle? You know what we want to build? a place called Gush Katif. Would you mind building greenhouses and settling in Gush Katif? So they did. Then they got a tap on the shoulder and said, it's time to leave, we're giving it back. You know what they said? I would have said, I'm moving to Boca, palm trees, pina coladas, I'm done, I'm out. Much warmer than Manhattan, I'm out. You know what they said? What's our next assignment? Where do we go next? And the state of Israel said, there's a swath of land, which is sand. No one thinks they can grow anything in it. Even Arafat, who was offered it in the deal, said, that's what you offer me? You can't grow anything there. And you know what they said? No problem. Just give us the coordinates. They add the address. We'll put it in ways. And they settled it. Shlomit, 75 families. Chalutza, by the way, blossoming and growing and green and beautiful and miracles. And on October 7th, infiltrated and attacked by terrorists. Not their actual neighborhood, but the one next door. And their civilian security force grabbed their guns. and met with their communities now staying in Gush Etzion. We were talking to them, and I spoke to one of the wives. I said, what did you do when your husband went to go fight? She said, my husband handed me a gun, said, go in the safe room with the children, lock the door, and if anyone comes to the door, don't ask questions, just shoot them. Imagine 
Take the children, go in the safe room. If anyone comes to the door, don't even ask questions. This Michael was on the security civilian force. 75 families in the community and four of the volunteer security force were murdered that day, trying to defend the Jewish people. Michael was injured. We saw him in the hospital. He had wounds in his leg and his arm. He was shot. He was injured. A regular guy, volunteer security. You know what he said to me? He said, when I get better, when I heal, when I leave this hospital, I was waiting for him to say again, I'm done. I put in my time. Yamit, Kush Katif. Now here in Shlomit, I'm done. Tel Aviv, I'm going to Tel Aviv. As if rockets don't go to Tel Aviv. He didn't say that. He said, you know, when I get out of the hospital, I'm going straight home to Shlomit. And we're going to build and we're going to expand. And you know what I'm going to plan? I want to start working on Simchas Torah next year because it's going to be incredible. We're going to bring the Torahs out to the spot where our friends were shot and killed. <coughs> and we're going to sing and we're going to dance and we're going to celebrate the Torah right there. How does Michael have the wherewithal? How does he have the strength? How does he have the purpose and the mission? How do the people of the Steyrot keep, keep going home? You know why? Because the candles of Hanukkah, because of the vision, instead of just the simple sense of sight, the capacity to see and to dream and to imagine and to make history, not just to report it. In our Hasidic Tales of the Holocaust, Professor Yafa Eliyach tells the following story. You may have heard it. But Hanukkah in Bergen-Belsen. This is not the first Hanukkah we're going to celebrate in a dark and difficult time. Hanukkah in Bergen-Belsen. It was time to light the Hanukkah candles. How they even knew on the calendar it was Hanukkah is a question. Now you couldn't exactly find the jug of oil. Thank you. Good, thank you. You couldn't exactly find the jar of oil in Bergen-Belsen. So what did they do? Or a menorah. They took a wooden clog, the shoe that the Nazis gave them, the inmates had. They pulled strings from a concentration camp uniform. They took black shoe polish they found in the concentration camp. It became the fuel. It became the pure oil. In the Blush of a Rebbe, so much of her book, of uh, Professor Eliak's book, Tales of the Holocaust, is about the Blush of a Rebbe, blessed memory. He stood there that night, not far from heaps of bodies, surrounded by living skeletons who'd lost their whole families, and in a barrack, he took this makeshift menorah and ready to light the Hanukkah candles in Bergen-Belsen. The Blush of a Rebbe lift, lift, chanted the first blessing, Hadik Ner Shel Hanukkah, that God, you commanded us to light the candle of Hanukkah, and he said it with pain and with sorrow and with grief. And when he was about to recite, and then he said the second blessing, Shasan Yisim, you made miracles. And when he was about to recite the third blessing, what's the third blessing? We say it only the first night. Shechianu, the blessing of thank you for keeping us alive. How blessed we are, how fortunate we are, how grateful we are to be in this moment and at this time. But what happens as he was about to recite the third blessing, he stopped, he turned his head, and he looked around as if he was searching for something. But immediately he took... And he turned his face back to the quivering small lights and in a strong, reassuring, comforting voice, he chanted that third blessing, Blessed are you, God, King of the universe, who's kept us alive and who's preserved us and enabled us to reach this season. And among the people present in that barrack that night, witnessing the blues of whatever light those Hanukkah candles in Hanukkah and Bergen-Belsen, was a Mr. Zamachowski. He was one of the leaders of the Warsaw Bund, of the Bund. He was clever and sincere with a passion for debating religion with a healthy dose of skepticism. 
When the Blush of Rebbe was done lighting the candles and having recited that third blessing of Shechianu, thank you for keeping us alive. Zemitkowski elbowed his way to the rabbi and he said, you know, rabbi, you're clever. And you made the blessing to light the candle. You made the blessing about the miracle. But how could you make a blessing thanking God for the merit of being alive? Here in Bergen-Belsen, in a barrack, in a camp, next to heaps of bodies and crematoria and gas chambers with living skeletons, you're making a blessing, Sheikh Yanu, thank you for keeping us alive. Thank you for making miracles. How? How is it possible? And everybody fixed their eyes on the Blizzard of Rebbe, wondering what was he going to answer? How was he going to explain? How would he defend and justify and make sense of reciting that blessing in that place and at that time? And he turned and he said, Zamachowski, you are 100% right. When I reached the third blessing, you know why I looked around? Because I also hesitated. And I asked myself, what am I going to do with this blessing? How could I say these words right now? 1,200 brutally murdered October 7th. We're going to say the blessing Shechianu on Hanukkah while there's still 150 hostages being held and we're learning with the release of the first the conditions with which they are being held. Learning that children held hostage were forced to watch videos of October 7th over and over again. While the Oakland City Council said it never happened, Hamas is proudly torturing children by making them sit and watch their barbarism over and over again. And we're going to say, Shechianu, what a great time to be alive. Thank you, God. Shechianu, it's amazing that we're here. The Blushev Rebbe said, I also looked around and I also wondered. And I also asked myself, how am I going to say this blessing? How can I say it? But just as I was turning around and just as I was looking around the room, I noticed that behind me was a group of people standing, a large crowd of living Jews. And their faces were filled with faith and devotion and deliberation that they gathered, didn't neglect and didn't ignore, but they gathered to observe and to watch and to participate in the lighting of the Hanukkah candles, even right here, and even right now, even in this place. And I said to myself, if God has such a nation, that at times like this, when during the lighting of the Hanukkah candles, they see in front of them heaps of bodies, their beloved fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, death is looking at, peering and gazing from every corner. And despite all that, they've gathered to watch and to celebrate and to look into those flickering lights of the candles. Then I can say indeed, to be blessed, to be in this moment. We can look at what's missing. We can look at what's lost. We can look at the devastation and destruction. We can become despondent. That's what's in front of us. If you're on the surface and that's what you're looking at, there's a lot of reasons to be hopeless and to despair. There's a lot of reasons to wave the white flag and turn it in. Or we can be like the Blue Rebbe that night who didn't see what lay before him. The head of the Warsaw Bund only saw what lay before him. But the Blue Rebbe looked in those candles and he saw another layer of truth that wasn't equally accurate, but it was even more true. That even there and even then there were a gathering of people with faith and hope in Am HaNetzach, a people of eternity. And if that doesn't warrant a bracha of Sheikh, you know, I don't know what does. And when we look around the world at the Jewish unity and the Jewish hope and the Jewish tenacity and this room of young Jews eager to lean into their Judaism and to learn more and to stare anti-Semites in the face and to do something harder than just wearing a Magin David necklace or hanging a mezuzah on the door, but to say, I'm going to be a practicing Jew. I'm going to be a vibrant, animated, enthusiastic, energized, living, unapologetic, non-defensive Jew. 
that indeed is worthy of a shechiyana v'kiyimana v'giyana l'zman hazeh. Have a little more time? Okay. My flight doesn't leave till tomorrow morning. It's bad news for you. And we take a given as a given, because I want to take this to the next level. That the reason that we light the Hanukkah candles, the reason the rabbis give us, is something called Pirsume Nisa, which means to publicize the miracle. Rabbi Wild spoke before. Shabbos candles are lit near the table, where we'll use them. And the Hanukkah candles we light outside the door or in the window because we're trying to publicize the miracle. Chabad runs a campaign, parades in public square, and let's illuminate the world. We want as many people to see and to recall and recount the miracle as possible. But perhaps we're missing the point. Maybe the notion of Pirsume Nisa, publicizing the miracle, can be understood even a little bit deeper. That the real purpose is not to see the flame itself, but to allow the flame to illuminate and flicker and dispel the darkness and reveal the blessing that is right in front of us all along. We don't use the flame to sign a receipt or count money or read a book, but we use that flame to illuminate the darkness. So many of us live our lives focused on what isn't, what's missing, what we don't have. But you know, if happiness is the result of what you have, you'll never be happy. Because there'll always be something more you don't have. You want to make it on the Forbes 400? You made it, but you want to make it on the top 100. You're in the top 100, you want to make it in the top 10. You're in the top 10, you want to make it the number one. If you're number one and you want to build a space shuttle, then you want to do the next thing, you'll never be happy. There's always something you're chasing and pursuing. By the way, that's why in America, in front of the mayor, I hesitate to quote the Constitution, but in America, what it, what it grants us is the, the opportunity and the right to pursue pleasure. If you're pursuing something, why do you have to run after it? Because it's fleeting, it's running away from you. It's hard to catch up with. If your happiness is determined and decided by what you have, you'll never be happy because there's always something more to have. But if your happiness is determined by what you have, then you could always be happy because you always have something. There's always something there. And maybe the miracle, we look for miracles elsewhere. We're looking for enormous, where God will interfere and intervene and suspend the rules of nature. We're looking for miracles of an enormous magnitude. And maybe the fact that we're alive and breathing and well and have a roof over our head, maybe, maybe, it's a member of my community who has three out of her six children are severely autistic. Severely autistic. Has an incredibly difficult life. Incredibly difficult life to manage that family. And she said to me something that stuck with me forever. I once asked her, how are you doing? How are you holding up? And she said, Rabbi, any day that ends with the same head count in my home as the way the day began is a good day. Is a good day. Ezra and I have a dear friend who passed away very young. Brian Galbert. Way too young. Talk about a bright light. He was a torch. He was a... I can't even describe the light that he was. <coughs> I used to not like to celebrate my birthday, especially as I got older. You know, and poo-poo my family, and I didn't want to mark certain bigger birthdays that end with a zero. And ever since he passed away, I embraced every birthday is a gift. Every birthday is a miracle. Every birthday that's a celebration that you're still on this planet, that your family still has you and you have they, you have them. Any day that ends with the same headcount in your home as the, day, the way the day began is a miracle. Is a miracle. Maybe October 7th should teach us and remind that how many homes are incomplete, how many homes have a different headcount, how many homes don't exist at all. 
Where are our standards and our measures for happiness, for what is defined as a miracle? Corona didn't teach us that, where people couldn't breathe. And we say, you know what, if I have breath in my lungs and I breathe easily, it's a miracle. I'm alive. What a miracle that we can gather here at MJE. We were talking over dinner about how MJE weathered Corona, how difficult it was, a community that was needing to gather in person and did so remarkably, and I'll say miraculously. It's a miracle that this room is packed and that we can sit within six feet of one another, and that we can see each other's faces, and that we can breathe the breath of life, which is really the source of all existence. The Hebrew word neshama, soul, is the same as the Hebrew word for breathing, for breath, nishima. And we say in our prayers every day, kol ha-neshama tahalaka, kol ha-neshama, with all my soul I praise you. And the rabbi said, don't read it that way, read it kol ha with every breath I will praise you. Because if Corona taught us one thing, there are those still suffering from it who need a refuah shleima. Don't ever take for granted the gift of being able to breathe easily. To breathe easily. Not only all of us who the wind was knocked out of us on October 7th, but Corona, who so many people never caught their breath again. People still struggling from long Corona. With every breath I will praise you. Pirsume Nisa means we're not only publicizing enormous miracles like a little flask that lasted eight days or an army that overcame the odds against it, but ending a day with the same headcount in our home as the way the day began is a miracle. And you know what? We don't see it and we don't notice it and sometimes you've got to turn on the light. And that's the menorah. It's turning on that light of that flame to see what's right in front of us all along. The rabbis, when they codify this law, they say the mitzvah is defined as lighting, ner ish ubeso. Who has to light? How do you light? A candle for ish, a person, ubeso, and their home. And maybe homiletically we can say that we light this candle to publicize the miracle, the historical story of Hanukkah, but also, more importantly, to see ish, to see inside ourselves who are we and what are we about and where we come from and where are we going and who are we meant to be, what difference are we meant to make, what legacy do we want to leave? Near the candle, ish, it should illuminate and reflect on us. We sit and we stare and we gaze into that flame and it should reflect back on our life. We watch it flicker as it rises and we ask ourselves, how are we rising? How are we elevating? How are we growing? What are our aspirations and ambitions? We see that flame on fire and are we on fire? Or are we lukewarm, just coasting through life? The Pursume Nisa, the miracle that we're publicizing is not only a historical miracle, but is the miracle of life. It's the miracle of each and every one of our unique and distinct and inimitable existences of the difference and contribution that we're meant to make, the legacy that we're meant to forge. Ne'er ish, this candle is illuminating ish, our person, our truest selves, not what you see on the surface, not what social media can profile online, but the panemius, the essence the essential, the truest part of who we are. Sometimes we fail to see what's right in front of us all along. Several years ago, Sports Illustrated had an amazing story. I'm dating myself. Some of you will remember the name of Louis Salazar. He was a longtime major league infielder, minor league coach. He was out of baseball for a year, and he lives actually in Boca Raton, Florida. But in August 2010, he got the itch to return to baseball, And so Salazar sent out his resume, and the Atlanta Braves offered him a job managing their Class A Carolina League team. He joined the Braves 2011 for spring training. Anyone remember the name of Lee Salazar? Nobody knows what I'm talking about. You'll Google it. I would say later, but go feel free to do it right now. (laughs) Which is what you were going to do anyway. So 
He's coaching third base one March afternoon. Salazar is 55 years old, former third baseman. And at 55, the reaction time is not the same as it is in the prime of your career. And Brian McCann, hitting from 60 feet away, hits a foul ball that travels over 100 miles an hour right at the third base coach, Louis Salazar. Hits him square in the face. He didn't have a chance. Even with instincts of a player in their prime, he never had a chance. The projectile smacked him in the left eye, made a hideous sound, and knocked him backwards down the dugout steps. He fractured his right arm in the fall, but that was the least of it. He was unconscious. He was concussed. Blood poured out of his nose, his mouth, his eye. A helicopter transported him to the Orlando Trauma Center. And when he came to, he discovered that he lost his left eye. The ball hit him in his eye socket, and his eye was surgically removed. And it was a tough day to wake up and to learn he'd be without his eyesight and his left eye without his eye. And the doctor told him, don't worry, it just means you can't be a fighter pilot, but you can still do almost everything else. And when he was released from the hospital, he wanted to prove it. So he drove the three hours from Orlando back to his home in Boca Raton to prove that he could still drive. He said he needed to do it for himself. April 15th, he managed, he made his managerial debut. And by this story, his, gen, his story had generated some media attention, particularly among Braves fans. So there was a huge crowd there. And he said, just putting on the uniform, going to home plate, handing the lineup card to the umpire, that was the best moment of my baseball career. This is a major league baseball player, an all-star, a superstar, who said, surviving that incident, coming back and bouncing back, just standing at home plate, was the best moment of his baseball career. That's not why I'm telling you the story. I'll tell you why I'm telling you the story. I read this interview in Sports Illustrated years ago, and this line jumped out at me. He said the following. He said, in a way, this is a quote, in a way, I see more now than I did with two eyes. I see teammates and friends I haven't spoken to in 25 years. I notice more around the ballpark. It may be crazy to say, but in some ways it's been a blessing. I see more now with one eye than I saw before with two eyes. Sometimes we can have perfect 20-20 vision, two eyes that work, and we're missing things that are right under our nose. We're failing to see the blessings. We're failing to count the blessings. We're failing to have the vision to understand and know what matters and what is important. And Hanukkah is about lighting the candles and using them to harness our sight. Not ophthalmologically speaking, but the deep vision of what is true, of what matters, of what's real, of what is eternal, of the Amanetzach, of the people of eternity made up of individuals of eternity and families of eternity, of what is most precious and what is most dear, of the blessings and the miracles that are right under our nose and that are right all around us. But I want to end with one last point. One last message for us. As we're approaching the holiday of Hanukkah, but this one from our parsha from the Torah portion we're going to read this week. In our Torah portion, Yaakov, Jacob, is about to reunite with his brother, and this Torah portion has in it the formula how Jews go to war, how we enter combat, the three-part strategy that we have. But the Torah deviates to tell us a little, a little story that Jacob had left behind three jugs of maybe oil and he went back to retrieve them. He didn't want to give up on them. He didn't want to dismiss them. Even though he's very wealthy, he went back to go get them. And when he went back to go get them, what happened? Whom did he encounter? 
the angel of Esau, of Esau's brother, and they wrestled the whole night. And who won? Jacob persevered. He won, but he suffered an injury. The angel he wrestled with struck him in the leg. He was injured. And in fact, until this day, we don't need to get an usher, the sciatic nerve, all in order to commemorate the injury he sustained in his hip, dislodging his hip, the Gidanasha, from the wrestling match that night. And I'll ask you a very simple question with this last thought I want to end with. Normally, we all know the Jewish joke, right? Everybody knows this one. It's not funny, never was, but somebody invariably will quote it every year. What's the old Jewish joke? Every Jewish holiday could be summarized as they tried to kill us, we won, let's... So one second. This enemy of Jacob tried to kill him. He won. Let's not eat. What's going on over here? Since when do we not eat to commemorate that we won? That doesn't fit the paradigm of Jewish holidays. We always, to commemorate that we won, we always we always eat. We find something to eat. Sometimes this is a good one. Lakas and, and, and donuts. Sometimes it's matzah and maror. But we find a way. Hamantash, we always eat. So why are we commemorating Jacob's victory by abstaining and refraining from eating the hindquarter, the sciatic nerve, the gidanasha? There was a great commentary, the Chizkuni, medieval commentary. And the Chizkuni says, unlike Gorashbam and Rashi and all the other commentaries who say, why don't we eat the sciatic nerve? Why don't we have to traber, it's called traber our meat, remove that sciatic nerve in order to make that meat eligible to consume? Because we're commemorating Jacob's victory. The Chizkuni's body, that makes no sense. When we have a victory, we eat. We don't abstain from eating, so there's something else going on. And listen to what he says. He says, we're not eating it, not to celebrate the victory, we're not eating it to remember how Jacob got into this mess to begin with. The language the verse uses is, Vayivaser Yaakov levado. Yaakov went and wrestled levado. What does the word levado mean? By himself. Cheskuni wonders, the man has 12 sons. Why in the world was he by himself? The man has a huge entourage. He's built a family. He has friends. He has disciples and students. And he had to go get something. And he said, anyone want to come with me? Got an errand. Got to take care of something. Anyone want to come? I know the feeling a little bit. Thank God I don't have 12. I have a lot of children. They all of a sudden look down. They're all busy. They're all studying. All of a sudden they're home. I got to clean my room. Study. Says the chizkuni. The reason we don't eat it is not to commemorate a miracle and a victory. The reason we don't eat it is a punishment so that we remember a Jew never leaves another Jew alone. A Jew never leaves another Jew behind. A Jew never neglects another Jew. And a Jew never makes another Jew feel invisible or inconsequential or that they don't matter or that they're not counted. A Jew never leaves another Jew livado alone. Never leaves a Jew livado. Never leaves them vulnerable. Never leaves them exposed. Never leaves them so that an angel can come and wrestle and injure them. And this is a pivotal message and word of Yaakov, of Jacob, our forefather. If you look throughout the book of Bereshus of Genesis, you'll find over and over again, it's as if Jacob is like the first hippie. He's calling everybody brother. Hey, brother. What's up, brother? Everybody's brother. Achi. Ach. Everybody's ach. When he goes to the well, and what does he find? Before he meets, Rachel will become his wife. There's a group of hoodlums and gangsters and no goodniks, and they're hanging around the well, and they're hashtag me too, picking on the women. And he says to them, what are you doing? You're all paid to work. 
you no good Isvars you're sitting around. What are you doing? Get to work. Why don't they lash? You know what they say? You're right. We're going to go back to work. Let's remove the stone. Why don't they lash out at him? Why are they willing to hear his mus or his rebuke? You know why? Go look at the verse. You know what he says? He says, Achai, my brothers, what's going on? Why aren't you at work? When you start, even criticism, but with the expression, you're my brother, then people will be receptive to what you have to say. Jacob calls these strangers, these hoodlums, but he calls them, Achai, he calls them my brother. He calls Esav in our parasha, Achai, my brother, Miyad Achai, Miyad Esav. His own sons. He calls his sons Echav, the brothers of Jacob. He sits for a meal in our parasha with Esav's soldiers, and he calls them Achim, his brothers. Because for Jacob, everybody's a brother. The most amazing thing in Israel right now is this is the term everybody's using. A complete stranger on the street. Achi, Achi, my brother, what's going on? The cab driver, the bus driver, in the makolet, at the shuk. Everybody's Achi. Did you have that? Everybody's calling you Achi, Achi, my brother. Don't try this at home. Don't try this here in New York. <laughs> Everybody in Israel, I went to Israel, I'm going again this Sunday for three days just to hug as many people as possible. Just to hug. It's an amazing feeling. You can walk up to complete strangers and you ask, of course, and you can say, but <laughs> hug. Don't try that here. That will not go well. Could you imagine walking around Manhattan just hugging people? You'll be arrested. You'll be sued. Be an expose about. You can't do that. In Israel, everyone's hugging each other and everyone's calling each other, Achi, my brother. Achi, my brother. And we learned that from Jacob, our forefather, who called everyone from his enemy to his sons to the hoodlums at the well. They're all his brother. Where did the word ach come from? One of our teachers, Rabbi David Miller, when we studied together for those tests, Rabbi David Miller says, in the laws of mourning, when a person is mourning or grieving, they have to tear a garment. Are you allowed to mend it? Are you allowed to sew it up? Are you allowed to restore it? So it depends if you lost a parent, if a person lost a sibling. Sometimes you can, but you can't stitch it like it's new. And the Hebrew word for stitching, for bonding, for putting it together is me'acheh, to make it an ach. Brothers are when you bond and you integrate, and you stitch together, and you come together, and you are united of being together. And maybe that's why, in our parsha, when Dina is abducted, the sister of the twelve tribes is held hostage. This is not the first case of Jews being taken hostage. Dina was taken hostage, and she was raped. And Shimon and Levi, two of her brothers, say, not on our watch. We won't allow this to happen. And they rise up, and they face the people of Shechem, and they wage war, and they redeem their sister, and maybe that is their tshuva, that is their repentance for Yaakov having been alone. They hear the rebuke. Yaakov comes home, and he's limping. He just took the garbage out. He asked the kids to help. Everybody pretended they were busy. He went levado. He twisted his ankle. He fell over the garbage can. He comes inside limping, and everyone says, there's a lesson we need to learn. A Jew is never levado. A Jew never lets another Jew be levado. Can't ever let a Jew be alone. Ever be alone. Hanukkah is a time that we light the menorah and we see the best in the Jews around us. There are achim, achenu, achenu kolbeis Yisrael. Chaverim kol Yisrael. We are all united. We are all one. We are experiencing this unprecedented unity. It's incredible coming together. This focus on our commonality and not our differences. We are being sewn together and we are being bound together, and we are being united and coming together in the most extraordinary ways. When I went to visit that community of Shlomit, 
Chalutza, I told you about them, Michal is far part of, they have been relocated and they're living in Gush Etzion. Gush Etzion is in the West Bank. My brother lives there in Alon Shvut. It is over the Green Line. And I was visiting with them and a pickup truck was backing up into the area that they're all living. I was dropping off some washing machines. And I went up to the driver of this pickup truck to introduce myself and ask him where he's coming from and what led him to come want to help this family, this community, this community of families. And he told me that he was one of the leaders of the demonstrations in Tel Aviv having to do with judicial reform and on the famous Yom Kippur, just this Yom Kippur, when people were tearing down prayer groups. He was one of the leaders demonstrating against the kind of people who he had now come to help. And just a couple weeks later, he was coming to help, and I said, what happened? He said, I was doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing then, and now I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing now. There are no divisions, there are no walls, there are no differences. We're all achenu kobes Yisrael, we're brothers and sisters. We have one father, we're siblings. Nothing gives pride to a parent more than siblings getting along, cooperating, loving, helping one another. Siblings don't have to all be the same belong to different political parties, you could cheer for different sports teams, you could go into different careers, you could live vastly different lives. But in fact, to a parent, it's even more beautiful when siblings are so different, but every time they get together, they set it aside to find what they have in common, to be united and whole, to be at peace and to be one. There's no greater gift you can give a parent than to act like siblings. We light these Hanukkah candles, this Hanukkah, we look around and we see Jews who are not different than us. We see that we're all one. Chaverim ko Yisrael. We see what is before our eyes all along. And we long for and we pray for miracles. Not only the miracles of yesteryear, but the miracles that we crave and we need today. So my dear friends, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you. I'm so grateful for this incredible opportunity. But I implore you and I beg of you that next week, when you light those Hanukkah candles, don't run out of the room. Don't run to spin the dreidel or down the sifkania or go to the event. I'm sure MJ will have one. You'll get there. They'll schedule it half an hour after candlelighting time. Turn off your technology and sit and stare at the candles. They'll repair the damage we've done to our eyes by looking at the wrong thing, by looking at people the wrong way, by looking with envy and jealousy and lust and judgment and criticism. All that we've done wrong with our eyes, by looking the wrong way and looking at the wrong things, we can repair our eyes if we look at these candles. We don't use them, we just look at them. Because they will publicize the miracle. Not the miracle that's out there, the miracle that's in here. The miracle that is each and every one of us. Keep learning, keep growing, keep yearning, keep asking, keep coming together and being united as one. Because Am HaNetzach Yinatzeach when you come learn and you practice and we are proud Jews and we are committed to a rich Jewish continuity, we always have and we always will defeat whatever enemy that we face. They don't stand a chance. Like Jacob, we may be injured and we may limp for a moment, but we will persevere. We will triumph and we will win if we come together in that spirit of seeing far beyond what's visible to the naked eye. We live that life of vision of what could be and who we can become. Keep looking, keep watching, keep dreaming, keep living, keep asking and keep learning. Most importantly, keep doing it together. You in Manhattan, Jewish experience, and us with the Boca Raton Jewish experience. Thank you, by the way, for letting us the name. We didn't ask you for the budget, just the name. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's really a privilege to be with you tonight. Thank you, Rabbi Goldberg. Uh, to finish up our evening, I'm just going to give the mic over to my brother, Michael. And I want to thank Rabbi Goldberg. And the biggest nachas that we can give you, Rabbi Goldberg, is that we take your words to heart. I'm asking everybody. Uh, we get a nice crowd every Shabbos, but it's not always as many as this. Wherever you go to strengthen ourselves Jewishly, religiously, Friday nights here, 530 Saturday mornings, 9.30. Next week, special class about Hanukkah, the fellows as well, one-on-one learning. If you don't have a Chabrusa and you'd like to join us, very much use this as an opportunity to strengthen and to grow yourselves like Rabbi Goldberg was just inspiring us to do. And two weeks from now, we're going to be celebrating Hanukkah, which we have some great fuel uh, for Torah from your beautiful, beautiful words. Thank you, Rabbi Goldberg. Michael, thank you. Thank you, Rachi. <laughs> Beautiful words, Rabbi. Um, just a word from the Wilds uh, family. It's 28 years, which is not uh, easy to consume, but a snapshot in time. I also want to acknowledge Evelyn Rocklin, who joins us. I know the phone numbers of these two young ladies by heart. My mother, Alela Shalom, used to have me dial them to get you on the telephone when there was a rotary at the time. Um, this is a very special holiday for the next generations, and you should know that Mom, Zechon Levracha, has five great-grandchildren already now, and several of them carry her name. And it's a, it's a blessing for our family to anticipate and to watch the beautiful development of this organization. If I had to coin my parents in one word, my mom particularly, it would be quality. It would be the quality of their relationships, their friendships, even the dishes is the same quality. The same alarm guy that's taking care of my law office and my home is the same one my parents used. The judgment that they had, the vision of what they saw. There was one job that I had growing up. When I went to shul, my mom was in a conspiracy with the Rebbitzin. They would conspire when they saw somebody walk into the shul that didn't have a talus on which was a surefire sign that that person was single. (laughs) And I had the job then, and this is where I think I developed my public service and perhaps my brother, to go over to a complete stranger, introduce myself, find out if they were married, if they were hungry, and where they were going afterwards. Now, you try to go and do this now in a public setting. But that was where I found my voice. And I would come back and I would report And then we were deployed to bring these beautiful people to our homes, these expansive Shabbos tables. My mother was focused on what she could become and what she could do with the people in front of her. The rabbi took a bottle of water and made a bracha because he made something which would be a ministerial act, something more meaningful, and he gave us the blessing of participating. I have my mother's sitter. I use it. You have to see the notations where my brother put up check marks in her own comments and the worn pages where she turned to the sitter. This is your home, MJE. I had the privilege, my brother and I had the privilege 
of continuing her Mesorah, her legacy in our homes. This is her gift to you, where you'll find your voice, your narrative. It's not easy. As a mayor in New Jersey, there were about a thousand people that gathered. Forget that I carry a weapon for 30 years. When I walked out of a city council meeting with five police officers, and they were stomping on an Israeli flag, I then had my mom's voice in me to be safe, but to be proud. And I walked over, unbeknownst and not to the happiness of the police officers, I went in through the um, guarded area, and I took the flag and I kissed it. And I said, this doesn't happen in my city. You don't see anybody desecrating your flag and your station in life. You'll find your voice in the words of the sitter. But if you want to harness your sight, as the rabbi artfully spoke about, this is the optometry school to come to. This is the place where you'll be setting your lines of sight. This is the place where I urge you to support my brother, both financially but also in your presence, spelled E-N-C-E, because that's the most important thing, as we all say, Am Yisrael Chai. Thank you. Um, thank you all for coming tonight. You're invited to some food in the other room, and uh, really appreciate, once again, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Rabbi Goldberg. Thank you all for being here tonight. We're going to dive in tomorrow in about... 15 minutes or so, uh, right back here if you'd like to join us. Uh, let's say, let's say 10.05, okay? Uh, have a great night, everyone. <laughs>